That's, I feel like I could sum up what I want to say very simply in this long video by saying this. God is love and God is truth and there's only one of him. So the love of God and the truth of God are never opposed. Hey friends, Jenna Gizar here. I am the founder of a Catholic women's ministry called Blessed Is She, and I'm so glad that you stumbled upon this video. If you've been here before, welcome back. If not, great to see you. This video was born out of a little burning fire inside of my heart. As some of you know, I have struggled with doubt for the majority of my adult life. I've struggled all the way from atheism to not knowing which Christian religion is the true Christian religion, all the way to not understanding sacraments or not understanding the saints or not understanding biblical foundation for the Catholic Church. If you are like me and have ever struggled with any of those questions, it can feel isolating. It can feel like you're alone and you're not sure who to turn to for all of the answers to all of the questions that seem to keep on coming. And even when one question is answered and you can finally cling to some truth, it's like the shifting sands of foundation can sometimes be rocked and another question comes along that you don't know the answer to. If you've ever been in that position, my heart goes out to you. I know that that struggle is real and it's hard. For so much of my journey of being a Catholic woman, I have so often relied on faith and relied on believing for today. The Lord has been so patient with me through that entire journey, through that process. I'm so grateful to him for never leaving, despite my wayward ways, despite my questioning that can make me go into such a dark place at times. He's always been there. He's always been the light that's guiding me deeper and deeper into his embrace, into deeper and deeper relationship and intimacy with him. So I want you to know I'm praying for you. You're not alone. The Lord is with you. There are others who have had questions. The church has the answers for us. The Catholic Church has been the place that the Lord has continued to point me to. The Lord has given me really beautiful relationships that have helped me so much on this journey. And I wanted to offer you and me and my little heart the beauty of these friendships. And so two of those people in my life have been Father John Parks, who's the spiritual advisor for Blessed Is She, and my good friend Beth Davis, who have both been such um, rocks for me, again, just continually pointing me to the Lord. So I asked both of them if they would be willing to answer some of the most common questions that come up about Catholicism, about Christianity in general about the Lord. So I will be asking them some of my deepest questions, some of our deepest questions, those of us who are, are searching for truth. So would you come along for the ride with me? We'll ask them some questions. They'll give some brilliant answers. I just sit there like, <laughs> and always and forever continue to cling to the Lord in his word, in the tradition that's been passed down to us through Jesus the Christ. Let's get started. Hi guys, my name is Jenna. I'm Beth. I'm Father Parks. <laughs> He's <laughs> getting dressed. Excuse me. In this video, we're obviously gonna be attacking ideas, but not people. God commands us to love God with, with our whole minds. So that's really important. He says the greatest commandment, uh, part of the greatest commandment, of course. So anyway, that's what we want to do is uh, really also clarify things. There's a famous quote by Bishop Sheen. He said, there are not a hundred people in America who dislike the Catholic church, but there are thousands upon thousands who hate 
what they believe the Catholic Church to be. Mm-hmm. So we just want to make sure that if you're going to dislike Catholics or leave the Catholic Church, that you have an understanding of what you left. So anytime there's, we just feel there was not clarity, we just want to say, well, here's actually what the church teaches. Yes. Love that. I'm excited. So oftentimes I've had this inclination in me to just tell everyone your religion is fine. You're this kind of Christian. That's totally fine. We're all free to practice whatever we want to believe in. And if you're not hurting what I'm believing, then that's fine. So aren't all Christian religions essentially the same? Aren't all Christian denominations ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ? And isn't that enough? So from a Catholic perspective, I think an easy way for me to think about it is four questions. Does God exist? Yes or no. Was Jesus the son of God or not? Yes or no. Did Jesus found a church or not? Yes or no. And did Jesus found many churches or one church? Mm. And I would answer yes, 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 one. I think my ultimate question is, does truth exist? Really, we're getting on to, does truth exist? Mm. Because from the very beginning, from the very beginning, we've always had this problem. If you read like Galatians chapter three, Paul is like screaming at these people. Like, are you so stupid? Like, who bewitched you? (laughs) Like, if I or an angel from heaven to preach you a different gospel, may they be anathema, which means thrown out, right? Like, he's like, I taught you the gospel, and now he calls them Judaizers are coming in. They're now saying you have to be circumcised before you can become a Christian. No, no, no. Right. So my point is that this is not new. Mm. Uh, People sincerely trying to follow Jesus and then getting into real like debates about like, how do we do that? What does that mean? And in Paul's mind, he's not like, yeah, one is good as the other. You know, you got the Mm. Judaizers. No, he's like, I taught you the truth. It's the truth. And it's the truth. So you should follow it. If truth exists, then there can't one can't be equally as good as another. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth and the life. Not, I'm one of many truths, and you could find life here or somewhere else, right? It's very definitive. And that's why he was killed. Yeah. Jesus was killed for making definitive claims about himself that he was acting and speaking in the very person of Yahweh. Like the creator God of Israel, I'm acting and speaking in the very person of him, which was crazy. Like what right and what authority do you have to do that? So I'm not saying that there's not difficulty in finding the truth sometimes, that being called to love God with our whole minds takes work. Like it's, it's not easy all the time. But the question is, is it worth even the journey? Mm. Is there actually truth, you know? Some, th- some things are true, some things are false. And yeah. The other thing I would say is, if only God had foreseen this problem, <laughs> and in his great wisdom, not only given us a Bible, but given us like an authoritative way to interpret it. When our founders founded our country, like they wrote the constitution, but they knew that even though like they try to write in the plainest English possible, they would need a Supreme Court to be like the arbiter and the interpretive lens for it. Like they knew they just couldn't like distribute it to everyone. Like everyone read the constitution, just follow what it says because well, literacy wasn't high enough, which is true now and true in the ancient world, but also (laughs) because people can argue over the meanings of words. So if only God was as smart as the founders of our country and given us like an authoritative interpreter of the word. And he has. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why I love being Catholic. Yeah. Is we have the magisterium. We have this gift given to us where like the Holy Father, he's in rare cases, what's called ex cathedra, or like when all the bishops of the world come together in an ecumenical council, they can speak authoritatively on this, the interpretation of scriptures. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Bishop Barron's great analogy of the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church. Magister is the Latin word for teacher. Is that um, it's like an umpire of a baseball game. That, you know, when there's a play at the plate, was he safe? Was he out? If there's not somebody to say he was safe or is out, the game would quickly devolve into like bickering and arguing and then the game would stop. So it doesn't like prevent us from encountering Jesus, from reading the word. I think sometimes people interpret it that way, right? Like, oh, Catholics believe in the Pope and he like reads the Bible for them or something. So like 
I'm Protestant. I get to read the Bible. When you're Catholic, you don't get to read the Bible. Like the bishop just tells you what it says. It's like, no, we have the freedom to read the Bible. Yeah. And then when we come to confusing stuff, yes. we know where to turn to to settle the debate. Because if you don't have that, you get this, which is, mm-hmm. well, there's truth, there's falsity, but gosh, who, who to trust? And I guess you just kind of, you're on your own, you know? And we are going to kind of spend the rest of our lives then coming back to this fundamental question of, is there objective truth? Because you can leave the Catholic Church feeling stifled by that magisterium, you know, all the infighting or, or arguing over a single word, but you're not going to not encounter that in a Protestant church. Yes. And yet there is no one to call the play. So you'll just jump to another church to find someone to agree with you on that point. And then when you get to something new, something you've maybe never encountered or, or something in the word, now that doesn't sit quite right with you in your teaching authority. You're going to leave again. Is there an objective truth? Yes. Is it possible to understand exactly what Jesus meant? And I love what you're saying because on a practical level, everyone must have a magisterium. Everyone must have a teaching authority. Like if two Protestants in their Protestant church were arguing, they would probably go to their pastor right. and say, hey, we, we disagree. Like, what is it? And he would tell them and then they would believe him. But that taken to its ultimate extreme is unfortunately then we become kind of our own. Like, well, I disagree with that pastor. So I'm leaving that church to go to this other church. And now I'm going to see what they say. And if they don't agree with me, then I'm going to go to this other church. But really what I'm saying is that what I think the scripture means is the truth. I'm the interpreter of the word. And again, my favorite author, G.K. Chesterton, I could quote him all day. (laughs) He said, a Catholic has come to the incredible realization that somebody knows more than they do. Jesus has given us the gift of the magisterium so that when we have difficulty, we know what the word says. You know, the Second Vatican Council says the magisterium is the first servant of the word. So in other words, um, the Pope is not there to like create truth. He's there to serve truth Mm. and transmit truth so that we today in 2020 can still hear the living voice of Jesus and we're not just left with, well, a lot of people believe this and a lot of people believe that. And at the end of the day, you just got to kind of decide what you think Jesus meant. Father, I remember being at a conference and, and hearing a speaker use this like turn of phrase that I found so interesting. He called it democracy of the dead. It's G.K. Chesterton. Is it really? Yeah. What does that mean? It's how we define tradition. You let the dead have a vote. So in other words, when you look in the past, like the, the reason why we're still reading like the Iliad and the Odyssey or our ancestors thought these were great books, so they preserved them. Mm. So we're letting like even the dead have a vote, so to speak, mm. because we're saying, well, if they thought this was worth preserving and handing on, there must be something to it. Mm. So it's a great corrective to a lot of modern people. We can be progressive. And by that, I mean, what's been called chronological snobbery. Mm. <laughs> what is newer is better. Okay. If it's newer, it's better. Yeah. So, oh, this textbook came out last year. This one came out five years ago. This one's better. Well, how do you know it's better? Because it's newer. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. But well, there's a helpful corrective, which is tradition, which is, well, no, let's let the people before us were not dumb. They were not stupid. What did they think? Is there something we can learn from the past? Yeah. And sometimes there can be this kind of modern feeling like we're just objectively smarter than everyone in the past and they did terrible things and mm-hmm. we're just becoming increasingly more enlightened. I do think people believe that. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And you would think the 20th century, like a couple world wars would have disabused them of that notion that like maybe things aren't always getting better. Maybe we're not always just evolving to something better, but alas, yeah, we still believe it. But the saints, why do we turn to them? Aren't they just dead people? Why are we asking dead people to pray for us? Why would I turn to saints? Why do I have to turn to saints? Which we don't, right? But why would we do that when I can just talk to the Lord? Why do I need these other people? I sort of feel kind of in in the same vein of the democracy of the dead, that I look at these people who have, they've walked this journey of faith. They've like persevered through their life, through incredible hardship. 
And I'm inspired by that. So I want to like look to them and see how they did it, not as a substitute for God. And I guess that's not so much about intercession, but just even like the gift of the saints, right? That we kind of include them in our experience of faith. One of the ways that I, I feel is helpful to think about the saints is, I don't know if you've ever seen those old time movies where there's like an operator. There's one phones where like you pull the thing off and like, yeah. yeah. And uh, then they call and they say, uh, operator, I'd like to speak to like so-and-so. And then they have like that mainframe, then they like unplug it and then replug it in. If the saints are those like little holes, the whole mainframe is Jesus. Mm. In other words, it's only because of Jesus, because he's the vine, we have access to all the branches. It's through within in Jesus that we have connection to what we call the church triumphant, the saints in heaven. When Jesus appears at the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear and they're alive. Yeah. And they're talking to him. And Jesus says, I'm not God of the dead, but God of the living. And there are lots of people on earth that I want to meet to ask them about their faith because I'm just inspired by it. And if that's true of those who are still on earth, then how much more those in heaven who are interceding for us, it says in the book of Revelation that there are those holding bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the holy people of God. And so if that's true, then how much more we would not want to have to know them, to be inspired by their faith. So it's only because of Jesus that we can have access to the saints. So set us straight, we can talk to Jesus and we can ask saints to pray for us? Like those two things aren't in conflict, right? Of course. Right. And it's, it's the same way that um, I can ask you to pray for me. And nobody would think that like, I'm asking you to get in the way of the one mediation of Jesus. Mm. It's because you and I are baptized members of the body of Christ because we have a connection in, through, and with Jesus, we can pray for each other. So we can all be like small M mediators and the capital M mediator of Jesus. Okay. Tell me about the sacraments. What, why, where, how? So sacraments are not like man-made. They're the works of God. The catechism says they're like the master works of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why we believe in the sacraments is because of the incarnation of Jesus. So who is Jesus? Well, the God that we could not see becomes visible in Jesus. The God we cannot touch becomes tangible in the person of Jesus. So the sacraments are like physical stuff that God then takes and infuses supernatural power through them. So God is using something physical to infuse something supernatural. Well, why would we believe God can do that? Because he did that when he took flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. The God of the universe that we cannot see now took flesh and dwelt among us. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. So the sacraments sort of extend the incarnational principle through time and history that we can still have a physical encounter with Jesus today through the sacraments. The sacraments are essential Absolutely. to us because they are Christ becoming manifest to us yes. in our circumstances, in our time. They are really at the center of our faith. So the question is, is where does the initiative come from? Mm. Like, was it our idea and yeah. we're like reaching out to God through the sacraments or are they his idea and he's reaching out to us just like through the incarnation. And now we have a physical encounter with him through the sacraments. Well, I think about um, my time working in a parish, right? And I did a lot of sacrament preparation and I heard a lot of people come in, lifelong Catholics. The sacraments happen at a certain age because they're almost a rite of passage. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, that's a really common misconception, which is that the sacraments are things that we earn. Like okay. when I got a driver's license, I had to you know, take a test and then I had my permit and I did that for a while. And then I was good enough to get my license. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I think we think sometimes of the sacraments of that way. But if you think about it, we baptize babies and they don't do anything. So that sort of accents this reality that we think they're free, gratuitous gifts given to us by God. The other thing is, if you think about the gospel, when Jesus heals people, he does it in these strange ways. Mm -hmm. Like he could heal people any way he wants. And there's this guy who's you know, born blind. Jesus takes mud and makes it with spittle. Then he wipes it on his eyes. Then tells him to go walk and wash in the pool of Siloam. And then he does that and then he can see. Here's the question. Who healed that man of the blindness? Was it the mud or the water mm. or Jesus? 
And the answer, we would say, well, it was Jesus, but he used the instrumentality of the mud and the water to do it. Wow. So when like water touches a baby's head, there's nothing like the water itself that's doing it, but God is using the water and through this instrument, he's then bringing about, you know, the forgiveness of sins, becoming a child of God, a member of the church, receiving the Holy Spirit, all those things. Why does God do that? For the same reason why you don't talk to infants about their 401ks. Aquinas says (laughs) you communicate people according to the mode of the receiver. Okay. Mm. So if I said, we're going to communicate wow. with this guy, you said, well, I'm going to talk to him. And, you said, and I said, oh, he's deaf. And you're like, oh, then I'll do sign language. I'm like, oh, he's blind. You're like, okay. Then I'd use Braille or like physically touch, you know? In other words, I would communicate according to the mode of the receiver. Mm. Well, we're not souls or spirits floating around. We have bodies. We're embodied souls. And God is communicating with us in a way that we can receive. That's why he uses the sacraments. We receive divine life through physical stuff. That's cool. Beautiful. The word took flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah. One of the things the catechism says, I get excited. It says, <laughs> Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, is the author of all the sacraments. It's just wow. extending the incarnation in time and space. The Eucharist. This is a hot topic. Can't wait to hear your answers, Father Parks and Beth. Tell me about the Eucharist. The Eucharist! <laughs> the reason why we believe that the bread and the wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus It's because of four words. Because Jesus said so. That's it. Why would you believe something that he said? Oh, because we believe he's the son of God. Why would you believe he's the son of God? Because he rose from the dead. That's the reason. And I could explain to you philosophically what the church means by what's called transubstantiation, which is a philosophical way of understanding how it still tastes like bread and tastes like wine and looks like bread and looks like wine, but in its substance or in its essence, it's become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. I could explain to you philosophically, but you could not know any of that, but still believe it because Jesus said it Yes. and Jesus is the son of God. Mm. So if he said it and I believed it, then that settles it. Come on. You know? <laughs> if you said it, we believe it. What's that from? It's a Maverick City song. Oh. I'm like, they're singing about the Eucharist. They don't even know. <laughs> I mean, just read John 6. I mean, it's it's shocking how many times he says it over and over and over again. And he gets kind of carnal in his language about, we must like gnaw on my flesh and blood. I mean, it's, and it's a deal breaker, right? Mm-hmm. John chapter 6, verse 6, 6, many left and returned to their former way of life. It's like a deal breaker for Jesus. And he doesn't stop them. No, it's just a symbol. I'm just speaking in metaphors. Turns to his own followers. And then I love this. Peter doesn't say like, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense to us. He says, where else shall we go for you alone hold the words of eternal life? It's almost like he's saying, I don't exactly know how you're going to do this, but you said you can do it. So you're going to do it. And then at the last supper, the night before he died, oh, this is how you're going to do it. This is how you're going to give us your flesh and blood to drink through the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. You know? This is it for me. I I can never leave because of the Eucharist. Amen. Amen. It doesn't matter the scandal. Amen. It does not matter what any, how anyone else fails. Amen. I can never leave Jesus in his true flesh. I'm with you. This is why I love being Catholic. By the way, I just got to say one other thing. <laughs> Please. If we're wrong about this, can I just be real for a moment? Yeah. yeah. Dear listener at home, if we're wrong about this as Catholics, yikes. Like we are committing an idolatry on a level that is, at least the golden calf was golden. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like that looks like a wafer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that, that's crazy. But if we're right about this, and I'm saying because Jesus said so, because the whole, by the way, the early church, they all believed this. Mm-hmm. Second, third, fourth, fifth century, they didn't believe it was just a symbol. They believe it became the body, blood, soul, and So if Christians are wrong about this, we've been wrong about this from the very beginning. But if we're right about this, like it's just astonishing how intimate 
that God wants to become one flesh with us through the Eucharist. I mean, that is. And then we understand why marriage so is, a, is an icon or image or a sign of Christ's love for his church, because a, a bride and a groom become one flesh through sexual union, and we become one flesh through God's of the Eucharist. I mean, that's just like astonishing. It's all there in Ephesians 5. By the way, in the Old Testament, the manna that fell from heaven, do you remember what it tasted like? Bread? It tasted like it's honey. Like bread. Oh. oh. And Jesus says in John 6, your ancestors ate the bread in the desert and they died. But whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And if they if they tasted it and tasted like honey, what would that remind them of? The promised land was a land flowing with milk, milk and, and honey. honey. The Eucharist is a foretaste of heaven. He says, if you want eternal life, eat my flesh, drink my blood. This is the only place you can do that. Amen. The Catholic church can be a mess sometimes. Why would I stay? Have we met our quote of ugly churches in the Catholic church? Come on now. Come on. Come on. <laughs> I think we've exceeded them. Is there some bad preaching in the Catholic church? <laughs> yeah. Come on. Hopefully. Oh, come on. Let's not look at it this way. Okay. Is, uh, is there bad music in the Catholic church? Yeah. Oh, come on. Let's not talk. Okay. Um, is there been scandal in the church? Yeah. Have there been leadership that's fallen away? Yes, 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 yes. Does any of that negate the gift of the Eucharist? Does that mean God likes those things? Does that mean that we are, the church is always in need of renewal, that we should want to renew the church? Of course. Right. It's his bride. And if we love him, we love the things that he loves. So he's heartbroken by that. And so we want to be a part of that, right? We want to be holy. Regardless of scandal, how rocky things get, it's him. It's the Lord. And then what about confession? Why do I have to go to a priest for confession? Can't I just confess to the Lord himself? Confession. Why do I have to go to a priest? Which is a good question. The reason why we believe that we should go to a priest is because of Jesus. I know that we just keep coming back to that, but <laughs> it's actually it's actually true. It's actually everything. It's it's everything. Yeah. He sets the standard for everything. So um, in light of that, uh, Jesus, of course, uh, rises from the dead. He goes into the locked room with the disciples. He says, peace be with you. He shows them his wounds. He says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit whose sins you forgive are forgiven, and whose sins you retain are retained. Now, if you were to read this scripture and you're not used to the story, I think one thing would probably jump out, which is that he breathed on them, which just seems weird. Receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Take it easy, Jesus. Ever since the resurrection, kind of a close talker, hasn't he been? Anyway, it's, it seems kind of strange. I'm going to talk about a word in Greek, which is pneuma, which means breath, wind, or spirit. So when he says he breathed on them, and he had just said, receive the Holy Spirit. So he's giving them his very own spirit. To do what? To do what he did. One of the things Jesus did is he forgave sins. So he says, whose sins you forgive are forgiven and whose sins you retain are retained. How will they know whether to forgive the sin or retain the sin? Retains me, not forgive, unless they hear the sin. So this is the scriptural foundation for the confession of sins. A person might say, well, I want to go straight to God. And a Catholic would say, by going to the priest, I am going to God. And that's very confusing, isn't it? Mm, yeah. So, but no, that's like a physical person. I'm going straight to God. But you know what we're back to? The incarnational principle. Yes. Jesus, the word made flesh, is the author of all the sacraments. When the man with the paralytic, he heard a human voice say, your sins are forgiven. Everyone yelled blasphemy, right? That you might know that the son of man has forgiveness, has the power to forgive sins. Stand, pick up your mat and walk. And then of course he does it. You and I in 2020 are at no less of a disadvantage than the paralytic. He heard a human voice wow. say, your sins are forgiven. He didn't like sit by his bedside and hope and imagine like an invisible voice said it. He heard a human voice. And you, the three of us, when we go to confession and a priest says, I absolve you of your sins and with the Father and Holy Spirit, we get to hear a human voice. Through that something human, divine power is transmitted and our sins are forgiven. Wow. Here's just a quote by St. Augustine. He said, those who are baptized by Judas were baptized by Christ. 
So the reason why I say that is just getting back to the principle. It's the work of God. It's God's work. It's not ours. We didn't think of it. I've heard, you know, just from other Protestant friends, not only maybe this question of why do I confess to a priest when I can confess to God, but also I've heard, well, in scripture, I think it's James 5, maybe, confess your sins to one another. Yes. So you could just confess your sins to anybody and you can hear a human voice, right? That's a great point. So in, in this scripture that we just read, mm-hmm. he's talking to the apostles. So the modern day apostles are the bishops, those who share in their ministry are priests. So they were set apart to do this special role in the church. Now, the mode of confession has changed. In the early church, you could only go to confession once, and it had to be done publicly. I'm so grateful <laughs> that I live in 2020. I love indoor plumbing, and I love private confession. Yeah. Love, those two, love those two things. The principle's always been the same. God had given authority to forgive sins to his church, and you went to the apostles to receive that forgiveness, or their, those who share in their ministry, which would be the, the priests. I know the Lord loves everyone. That's what I'm taught by Jesus. That's what I see in scripture. So what about people who are gay? Doesn't God want them to be loved and to not be alone for the rest of their lives? What do we make of that? Yeah, there's there's so many things to say about that. So we'll sort of start there and kind of zoom out. I would just say, first of all, that I think we live in a pornified culture. And I think that in life, you can have a lot of sex and not have a lot of love. Yes. You can have a lot of love and not have a lot of sex. Yeah. But in a culture that's been so pornified, I think that when people are not presumably having sex often and with whoever they want, and that then they are sad or going to die alone in some right. way, right? Yeah. I just think that influences a lot of the way we just are formed about these issues. You know, I just think there's a lot of autonomy and freedom and sexual ethics, do whatever you want. And any sort of like implication that that's probably not good or bad, it immediately turns into like people slut shaming or whatever, you know, just these, don't tell me what to do with my body, right? Of course, all those things are being told because God wants us to have authentic joy and there's no authentic joy without chastity. But the reason why we call people to conversion is because of Jesus, because he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's amazing. You're here, Jesus. The kingdom of God embodied in word and deed. What's the response? Repent and believe in the gospel. What's repentance? Turn away from my sin and I turn towards the gospel. And so when when the church calls people to conversion, that's the same Jesus. It's the same love. Yeah. So when people are like, well, everyone should be welcomed at church, Jesus would welcome them. Amen. That's true. Right. But then when they get to church, everyone is welcomed on Christ's terms. Mm. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus believes that sin is really bad. It's like really bad. It's not like, oh, I'm just sort of like developing and growing. If that's all sin is, then when you look at a crucifix, if that's just me developing and growing, I killed the son of God. Whoa, maybe it's worse than I thought. Mm -hmm. If a man were an oncologist and he was removing a cancerous tumor from a patient, and let's just say for the sake of the story, the patient is his wife. How much of that cancer does he want to get out of her body? A hundred percent. Not 95? No. Maybe just leave a little bit in there? No. And to the degree that he loves his wife, it's the degree that he hates that cancer. Yes? Yeah. Because that cancer attacks the, his beloved. Well, if that's true in the natural plane, mm-hmm. and Jesus says, do not fear the one that kills the body, but kills the soul. How much does God have like a righteous hatred for sin? He wants us to be holy because in holiness is found everything. Joy, life, yeah. the community of life and have it to the fullest. Okay. So God wants me to be happy. So why can't I just continue to do what I want to do if that makes me happy? Why do I need to change? When you make a statement like God loves us and he wants us to be happy, but what is 
happiness. Yes. Is it the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want? Is that what will really make us happy? Yeah, I love that. Because if you think about the biblical notion of happiness, what we call joy, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then if that's true, then living in the Spirit brings joy. Well, if you read in Romans 8 and Galatians 5, Paul thinks there's a battle raging in every human heart between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. Mm. That's just going on in every human heart. And the degree that we submit to Jesus, we live in the spirit more than in the flesh, then we experience the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is joy. Happiness can't be sought for its own sake. It's the effect of being rooted in the Lord, you know? All of our bodies were built for holiness. Nobody's body was built for sin. What is repentance? You were mentioning earlier Zacchaeus. Yeah, yeah. Did you mention that again? Yeah, so when Jesus encounters him, right, he welcomes him, he calls him out of the crowd, like shows him special favor, invites him in, comes into his home. You're reading and you're feeling that acceptance and that love coming forth from Jesus for Zacchaeus personally. And Jesus doesn't even call him to repentance with words in that particular account. And yet still, Zacchaeus's response to just the person of Jesus is to repent. He spends time with Jesus and he realizes that he's done wrong in his life and he now wants to become like Jesus. He wants to become the man that Jesus sees him as and created him to be. And so he offers to repay anyone who he defrauded. He wants to turn his life around. So there's this like natural response of repentance without any formal like catechesis, just experiencing, encountering the person of Jesus, you want to change. So if you truly encounter the Lord, it's not antithetical to love to have to change. It's a part of love that you want to change. Yes. It's essential to love that you change. It's been said pithily, like God loves you just the way you are, too Mm -hmm. much to keep you that way. Or like a father chastises the son who he loves. Yes. He wants him to be better. And I love the Zacchaeus example because if you remember after Zacchaeus says that, I will give like a fourfold restitution to anyone I'm wrong. It's only after that Jesus says today salvation has come to this house. Wow, yeah. And the way that we know that we've encountered Jesus is we have a conversion. So if I've encountered Jesus and nothing about my life has changed, I really have to ask myself, did I really encounter Jesus? When I encounter the Lord, the thing he wants me to give up is my sin. That's not easy, but it's certainly worth it. And it's the call to conversion. When I think about that reality, like that God hates sin, just like a husband would hate cancer in his wife's body. It's like, whoa. And the cross says he he really hates it. It's his judgment on sin. That's how ugly it is. Wow. So dark it is. That's how destructive it is. That's what it does. Yeah. I think some other Christian faiths or religions are wrong. Why can't I discern what I believe to be true? Churches are wrong. That can be wrong. And at the end of the day, when I think a church is wrong, I got to believe what, what is right. Another way of thinking about that is you're the Pope of your own church. Yeah. And you're the magisterium and you decide, you get to critique. And does everyone live up to my standard of what it means to follow Jesus? The Chesterton quote, a Catholic is somebody who believes that somebody knows more than they do. Mm. I don't critique Jesus in the church. It critiques me. Yeah. I didn't make it. It's making me. It's not obedient To me, I'm obedient to it, right? That's like the first step of religion is there is a God and you're not it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And I know that seems from the outside kind of very humble. The three great monotheistic religions of the world, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, all believe in objective truth. They believe that they have like a definitive revelation from God. So you're disagreeing with all those people. You know, Truth, it's real. I I feel like I could sum up what I want to say very simply in this long video. I sang this, God is love and God is truth. And there's only one of him. So the love of God 
and the truth of God are never opposed. So when we hear the truth of the gospel, sometimes it's like, whoa, can we live that way? It starts with good news, right? Yeah, yeah. What God has done for us. Then the response to repent, is it worth giving up my sin out of love for him? That's kind of the, the light beginning to kind of challenge me, the truth, but the warmth of his love is still drawing me. I don't like the structure of religion, the rigidity of religion. Why can't I just have a personal relationship with Jesus? I just have to say, I'm, I'm just a little tired of this sort of trite caricature that religion is always opposed to like relationship and love. Yeah. So mm. religion is structure and just intense structure and it's and God is far away and you have to like shoot some ladders. And then yeah. there's just Jesus just like hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. It would be like somebody saying, I don't want to get married because married is like, there's just so much structure. You know, I just want to like love people. I want to love another person intimately. I don't feel like I need the structure of marriage to like marriage. I mean, people do say that, Father. <laughs> yeah, but marriage is the means by which you have deep intimacy. Mm-hmm. Marriage is like putting it all on the line. Yes. Like I'm just tired of the structure of like having kids together, living in the same house and having a date night and all this. Like, no, no, marriage is the thing that protects the intimacy between you and your spouse. You know what wow. I mean? When God calls us to join his church, his body, Jesus didn't teach anybody to my father. He taught us the our father. We have brothers and sisters. And salvation is not merely an individual act. It's a corporate act. Corpus is the one for body. We're meant to be a member of the body of Christ. So God wants us all to join his worldwide family, which is the church. <clears throat> Can there at times be like too much institutional structure? Yes. Has Pope Francis talked about that and wanted like less structure because he feels sometimes it gets in the way of people just growing as a disciple? Yeah. So that's like a discernment. But the fact that there's supposed to be no structure, we're, we're people. We need we need to have a system of some sort to, to love God. Well, and to mm-hmm. your point about religion not being opposed to relationship, I would actually say that that weekly commitment of receiving the Eucharist is actually just a, an expression of the relationship. Yes. Right? If I truly believe that's Jesus's body, blood, soul, and divinity, and I love him, and I want to follow him with my life, I want to radically be formed to his character to his standard, why wouldn't I go and receive? It's not an obligation. If a husband's like, I just want to be married to you. I don't want to go to date night every Thursday. The way you express your love for me is you go on date night. I just think, can't I believe what I want and you believe what you want and we just coexist? At the end of the day, we we are going to be in conflict. If everybody is right, we're going to find different religions, expressions, beliefs that do not agree. So it will be impossible to coexist. Right. If I believe murder is okay and I want to come and murder you (laughs) and you believe murder is not okay and you want to live like those beliefs are in conflict. I think the fundamental problem is moral relativism. So like one truth is as good as another truth. And if that's what you believe, like fundamentally, like you can say, like, it's all about going to heaven. And if you really believe you're going, but if you don't believe anything I'm saying, I think you're amazing, too. And I think you're going to go too. then your theology can never make sense Mm. because you basically believe that it doesn't really matter what people believe. One truth yeah. is really as good as another. That's really saying there, there is no truth. And you can't build anything on that. That's not a solid foundation. So that's the problem. Jesus becomes not like the Lord. Mm-hmm. He's like silly putty that we can just remake into anything. It's like, well, that's what I think Jesus is. Any closing thoughts, guys? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that to say that any Christian religion, because we disagree about fundamental things, can babies be baptized or not? Should they be? Does the Eucharist become the body and blood of Jesus? Can you lose your salvation or not? How many sacraments are there? So on and so forth. Since we disagree about all of those things, to say that then one church is as good as another, even though we have differences about fundamental teachings, what you're really saying is truth does not really matter. And once you say that, to me, the whole show is up. It is pointless to argue because the whole point of like arguing and debating and dialoguing is to come to the truth. I think the good news is that baptism is an indelible mark on our soul. Amen. 
So anytime someone leaves, should say, stops practicing their faith, Mm -hmm. the Lord never abandons them. They're marked as his for all eternity. So I believe the grace of the sacrament of baptism will continue to draw any soul who has wandered away from the church back to himself, back to his body. Amen. Okay, so you've answered a lot of questions. What do I do with the rest of these questions that have already arisen, have already come up, or maybe will arise in the future? Where do I take this? Two things. I just always want to make sure that people know the gospel, that they really know the heart of what it means to be Catholic. That's so super important. I've just met a lot of Catholics who don't know the gospel. And then the other thing is having questions is a good thing. Catholics. Yeah. It's a thinking person's religion. It's such a gift to have a religion that totally affirms the gift of reason and science and all of those things. So my only thing would be, please go to good sources. Yes. And that would be like the catechism or the scriptures, or legitimate Catholic websites like catholic.com, or you know, just going to good websites. So it's just very frustrating when people accuse us of things that we don't believe when we wrote them all down. We're not like a secret society. Like we wrote down everything we believe in something called the catechism. It's like $9. Mm. It's free online everywhere. Please just go to good sources. In youth ministry, I would always tell the teens, you know, when they were kind of wrestling with the teaching or doubt, it's good that you have questions because that means you want to make it your own. You want to assent to belief. You want to make a decision to believe this thing that you inherited, right? This faith that you inherited, but go to the church to find those answers. Don't go to YouTube, you know? That might open the door, absolutely, but come to the church, come to reliable sources. And ask somebody who knows, you know? Yeah. Either a priest or somebody who knows is a faithful Catholic and knows the teaching of the church, you know? Mm-hmm. And I do think ultimately what we're talking about, faith, Catholicism, is a relationship with a real person. We have to pray and talk to that real person and ask for the gift of faith, ask for clarity, ask for wisdom, ask for what we need, because we can become driven in this relentless pursuit of knowledge that actually never moves our hearts, never causes us to convert. It's just trying to satisfy I don't know, maybe what we believe or what we we want to be true. So we're going to keep looking for other sources that kind of make us feel like that thing I've always believed is right, instead of entering into a relationship with a person and becoming like him. You've mentioned the gospel. What is the gospel? It grieves us that people could have grown up in the church and have never clearly, succinctly heard the gospel and been invited to follow Jesus. So I just wonder if you would do that for us now. On June 6th, 1944, over 160,000 Allied troops landed over a 50-mile stretch of the beaches of Normandy, France. Why did they come to France? Did they come to check out French culture? No. Were they there to look at the beaches? No. They were there as soldiers to free Europe from the clutches of Nazism. They were there to rescue Europe. That's why they showed up. In a few days, we're going to celebrate the season of Christmas. And if we were to ask ourselves, why is that baby in that feed box, in that cave. Why did that baby come? And he's come to rescue us. That's why he's here. And uh, all of us, I know I can experience my own life, um, where I did something that I knew was wrong, but I did it anyway. And for St. Paul, that was, when we ask ourselves, what did Jesus come to rescue us from? He would say sin and death, capital S, capital D. So capital sin, S sin, means that there are forces in our life that we are like enslaved to. That if we've ever had that experience, I was like, why did I do that? Why did I do the very thing that I didn't want to do? Why do I somehow mysteriously kind of delight sometimes in destroying my life or doing things that are destructive? Like, that's just so weird. And that's called sin. 
and it has power over us. And in St. Paul's mind, you can't just get out of it by your own like trying harder. Mm. He didn't think that was possible. He thought the only thing that could set you free from sin is something how to invade the kingdom of sin and come to rescue it in the midst of it. And God has done that. And then, of course, capital D, death, everyone we know and love uh, will die. All of the bonds we have on this side of eternity will be broken through death. So, of course, the culmination of Jesus's life is through his death and resurrection. But when he sort of established his uh, beachhead, when he sort of established his little rescue operation, is as that baby in that manger. And he's come to rescue us, which is phenomenal news. And uh, he's restored our relationship with God through his death and resurrection. And of course, because he's fully man, he could offer the sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. Because he's fully God, he could reconcile us with God. So a lot of times we say the death of Jesus on the cross is an atonement, at one It means that because Jesus is fully man and fully God, he could commit an act of atonement to renew or restore our relationship with God. And we can never do it by our own power, St. Paul says. He had to invade our kingdom He's the strong man who binds the strong man and steals all the spoils, as it says in Mark's gospel. And we're the spoils. We're the goods. So that's why that baby's here. He's come to rescue us. Uh, that requires response from us. In this relationship with Jesus, we're restored to God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I can experience increasing freedom from my sin. And I have the remedy for death, that I can now have hope in the face of death because Jesus has conquered death by his death and his resurrection. And he wants us all to experience that as a daily reality. Jesus came to rescue us. Jesus came to rescue you. But it doesn't matter if he's born and placed in this feed box, what we call a manger, unless he's born in our hearts by faith. And the way that we get faith is we hear this good news of the gospel and we say yes to it in some concrete way. So that's the gospel. It's just a concrete way to respond. So if somebody were listening to what I'm saying right now, and they were to just think that was good news, like, yeah, I like that. They could just say a very um, simple prayer. Shall we pray now? And if you want, from home, you could just repeat after me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God, I believe that you know me and you love me, and I have not always followed you, and I have committed sin, and I have broken my relationship with you. And I believe that, Father, you sent your Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for me, and you rose to do life, thereby conquering my sin and my death. Jesus, I invite you to be at the center of my life, to be my Savior and my Lord. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I might live the gospel with my whole life. Amen. Amen. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's some good news. Woo! Thanks, Father. You're welcome. Th thank you, guys. If you liked this video, hit the like button. Tell us what you think below. Love you guys. Love you. Bye. So, my friend, thank you so much for listening in, for hearing and having an open heart and ears to the truth. The Lord is with you on this journey. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. If you'd like to learn more about the church, you can go to blessedishe.net. We have a bunch of resources, some resources about how to go to mass and how to pray the rosary. And we share different resources about saints, about different church teachings. I want to invite you, if you aren't sure where to start, you can start there. And as Father Park shared, there are other resources Again, the catechism is one that I turn to really often for answers to my questions. So I'm praying for you, I'm praying with you, and I'm excited for you and I to live in the freedom of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'll see you next time.